K-A-L-W. We don't want to see school closures. We want neighborhood schools and we want them to be resourced. Valerie Batchelor went from protester to member of the Oakland Unified School Board. We as a district have closed schools almost every single year uh, in order to save money, which we have yet to see those cost savings. Today, she gives us an update on the Oakland school closures. Then we hear how the legend of the Emperor Norton lives on in San Francisco. But who was he really? I was a people's emperor, and I could speak well and intelligently on a wide range of topics except one. If you question my authority as emperor, you better look out. Look out. News and culture from around the Bay. I'm Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. A year ago, the Oakland Unified School District voted to close several schools, citing declining enrollment. That decision galvanized local activists to protest the closures and, in some cases, go a step further. In the case of Parker Elementary, one of the schools slated for closure, community members stepped in. It was really sad, um, because that's like a time that kids are supposed to be really happy, you know? And all of the kids were crying. They were holding on to each other. Nobody wanted to leave because they knew the school would be closed. So then I I really knew like, okay, this is serious. I'm going to stay here. In June, they ran a free summer program to keep the school open for four months before being evicted. Now, Oakland Unified School Board members have voted to reverse the decision to close those schools, and they're trying to figure out how to fund them. KLW's news editor, Sunni Khaled, spoke with Valerie Batchelor. She was elected to the school board last fall after participating in protests against school closures. In this interview, she talks about the challenge of keeping neighborhood schools open. There was a huge hue and cry a year ago when Oakland Unified School District announced it was going to be closing several schools. And this went on through the summer. And you were one of the people who ran for the school board and vowed to reverse that decision. And you have made good on that. Why have you made that decision now? I think just to clarify, that outcry had been happening for over 10 years. We as a district have closed schools almost every single year uh, in order to save money, which we have yet to see those cost savings. So in 2020, I became a homeowner here in Oakland and lived up the street from Parker Elementary. My husband and I have been in the process of trying to have children, and we are very excited to have so many elementary school options available in our neighborhood. And then, you know, come to find out that Parker and Carl Monk, two schools that are in our district and are very close and dear to us, were on the chopping block. That galvanized me to take action. My husband and I went to rallies and protests to really show our concern as new residents of uh, Oakland. And those cries were not heard by the school board. They decided to shrink the list, which, you know, was helpful, but still didn't really get to the root of the of the issue that folks were outlining, which was, we don't want to see school closures. We want neighborhood schools and we want them to be resourced. Unfortunately, Parker and Community Day were two schools in my district that were closed last year. That closure and that outcry really galvanized me to run for school board. 
I was not someone that was even thinking about doing this, but I was like, we have to have a better option than closing our schools to fund our schools. And so, you know, I got myself informed about the budget. I gathered folks around my community to see if there was interest in, you know, supporting me as a school board candidate. And, um, you know, I ran, I just decided to go ahead and run and see what happened. And fortunately enough, you know, I think that District 6 voters had had enough of school closures. They saw the devastation that it had in our community and they wanted no more. And so they voted for me to represent them. And I really wanted to carry that message. And I think with my first vote ever on the school board, I think I did that. And I'm happy to continue to do that work and to really look at our budget in a different way so that all of our schools could not only be opened, but fully funded and support our students and educators every day. Well, your predecessors, including the uh, former superintendent, said that the decisions were made basically on the bottom line, that Oakland school student enrollment has been going down significantly on a dollars and cents issue. The uh, school district has been in receivership. Your predecessors said that this was dispassionate. It was done for fiscal reasons, not any other reasons. How do you see this differently? Well, I believe that we can be fiscally responsible while having community schools. And to me, that means really looking at our budget as a whole and not just looking at how much we spend per child per school. We are the only school district in California who spends over 500% more on our top level non-represented administrative staff than any other district in California. And I think that that needs to be right-sized so that we can use those cost savings to support our students in our classroom. So I think that part of it is really shifting the conversation around the budget, understanding our priorities and actually fully funding our priorities versus closing schools, laying off staff, and having folks just leave our district because it's so unstable. We do have decreased enrollment. So have our charters in the area because folks have been leaving the district for many different reasons, one of which was COVID. But we're not going to be able to retain families or attract new ones if we continue what we're doing of closing schools and under-resourcing our campuses. Now, the school district received part of the surplus last year. I think it was about $10 million from the state, which is a one-time surplus. How is that going to uh, help you fulfill your goals? Well, one thing that the district hasn't really talked about a lot is that last year we didn't have enough staff at every school site so that we actually saved or had a surplus in staffing-wise of $16 million. So that money has not been accounted for in any of this cost savings that we've been talking about. And that $10 million, from my understanding, we have still yet to see if we're even going to get that funding from the state. So I believe that $16 million covers that $10 million gap that we would have if we don't get that funding. I also believe that there is a contingency upon us continuing to close schools, whether or not we're going to get more funding through AB 1840, but that's yet to be seen. And those are conversations I'm still in the process of having to understand more about that legislation. Looking to the future, the next five or 10 years, if the current trends continue with losing enrollment, is closing schools going to be something unavoidable that even uh, someone like you who campaigned on stopping the school closures are going to have to basically deal with at some point in the near future? Well, again, that I want to bring in the community as a part of that conversation, because I think that part of what was so horrific about the school closures and really last year's school closures is that the community was never engaged or involved in the development of that process. So 
I've already been engaging with community around like, you know, what does right sizing our school district look like if our enrollment trends continue to lower? I've also been talking to folks about how to engage and increase the amount of TK and kindergarten enrollment, because now we do have the state funds to support those programs. And I've also been engaged with the teachers union to figure out how do we support and recruit more educators of color and more educators for those TK classes. So I think there's many different ways to go about looking at what we're going to be doing in the future. And maybe school closures is on the table at some point. But to me, it's got to be through thorough community engagement, through thorough analysis of where our district schools are, where our communities need schools, and what our facilities needs are, right? We have many of our campuses that are very, very old, and we need to make real investments in those campuses. So I think that's also going to be a factor. It's whether or not we want to continue to invest in some of those campuses, or we want to shift those resources and try to invest in other sites and other campuses. But again, to me, that needs to be a conversation that the entire community is a part of, that the community is engaged in, and that parents and community members really have an actual voice in, and it's not just something that is presented to them after the fact. That was Valerie Batchelor, who represents District 6 as a school board member at the Oakland Unified School District. She spoke with KLW News Editor Sunni Khalid. You're listening to Cross Currents. From KELW News, I'm Hannah Baba. Monday was President's Day, which honors George Washington's birthday and celebrates the office of the president. But did you know our nation once had an emperor? Kind of. Once upon a time in Gold Rush era San Francisco, a businessman amassed a fortune and then lost it all and went insane. His next move, he declared himself emperor of the United States. This weekend, San Francisco's iconic oddball, Emperor Norton, will be celebrated at the annual Widow Norton's Pilgrimage in Colma. Reporter Michael Lockswingen met some of the quirky people who carry on his legacy today and made an original documentary with KELW called Long Live the Emperor, the weird tale of San Francisco's most beloved eccentric. Here's an excerpt. This is Portsmouth Square, the birthplace of San Francisco. All civic life in this city started right here. It's hard to imagine it, but this city block was once the original town square of early days San Francisco. The first houses and school were built here. The city hall was across the street along with the church and customs house. But today the neighborhood has quite a different look. Now we know this as Chinatown's living room. We are on the eastern edge of San Francisco's Chinatown, the largest in the United States, at over 24 square blocks. I'm standing in a crowd listening to a tour guide. The tour is called Emperor Norton's Fantastic San Francisco Time Machine. The guide is channeling Emperor Norton, a real-life historical figure who used to wander these very streets. 
He's wearing a blue Civil War era army jacket with a red sash wrapped around his waist. Also a stovepipe hat with parrot and peacock feathers fastened onto the brim. I was a people's emperor. I would sit on a park bench and hold court. Anyone could walk up to me at any time and carry on a perfectly normal conversation and I could speak well and intelligently on a wide range of topics except one. If you question my authority as emperor, you better look out. Emperor Norton was one of the kookiest characters who ever set foot on the streets of San Francisco. And this is a city that's always been known to have a surplus of crackpots and nonconformists. Our guide's real name is Joseph Amster, by the way. And as our little flock of tourists make their way through Portsmouth Square, he leads at the head and waves with a cupped hand as if he's Princess Diana or something. Some of the Chinatown locals spot the emperor and bow. At the other end of the square, he picks up the story with the start of the gold rush. On May 12, 1848, Sam Brannan goes running through the square holding up a quinine bottle filled with gold nuggets, yelling out, gold, 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 found on the American River, Eureka! That launched the great gold rush of 1849. He bought every shovel in town before making the announcement. Yeah. Made a fortune reselling them. Very much like the San Francisco of today, the gold rush was a veritable feeding frenzy of unscrupulous money-grubbing and madcap wheelings and dealings. It was a time marked by turbocharged capitalism, fortunes won and lost overnight, booms and busts on a colossal scale. The city was growing tremendously. Population was doubling every month or so. People were coming here trying to make their fortunes. When Emperor Norn arrived on the scene, he wasn't emperor quite yet. He was just another 49er known as Joshua Norn. But Joshua Norn didn't come to pan for gold. He came to make his fortune in real estate trading, commodities trading, speculation, that sort of thing. And he saw an opportunity in that. That's why he started bringing in boatloads of commodities to resell and buying underwater lots when they would become dry ground and become valuable. So he really uh, saw it as an opportunity to make his fortune, but in a different way. Joshua Norton was an astute businessman and managed to parlay a $40,000 nest egg into $250,000 in just three years. That'd be over $8 million today. But as for any true capitalist, that wasn't enough. He wants more money. So he needs a new scheme. And he realizes people eat a lot of rice. He tries to corner the market on rice. He's going to be the Bay Area's biggest rice importer. But his timing is terrible. The price of rice is soaring through the roof. So he buys up all the rice at a premium, leverages everything he has, gets other investors as well. But his risky speculation goes south when boatloads of rice from Peru come sailing into the bay at that moment. The unexpected shipment creates a glut in the market, and his rice becomes nearly worthless. He loses everything. There are years of lawsuits, leaving him bankrupt, shamed, forgotten. Day by day, he slowly buckles under the weight of his failed business ventures. He falls out of favor with San Francisco's social elite. His mind starts to fail. Joseph Norton becomes a nobody. And then he just disappears. For two years, no one knows where he went. But he comes back. He comes back on September 17, 1859, walks into the offices of the 
San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin newspaper, hands the editor George Fitch a proclamation declaring himself the Emperor of the United States. And the newspaper goes ahead and prints it. Granted, newspapers were different back then. They printed pretty much anything. But the story gets even weirder. Most everyone in San Francisco goes along with Emperor Norton's delusions for 21 years. Treats him as, as if he really were that. He eats for free in restaurants, has the best seats in the theater, people rise when he makes his entrance, the police salute him, businesses clamor for his endorsement, rides transit for free, prints his own imperial treasury bonds, which are accepted as legal tender whenever he presents them. Guitarist Paul Kantner of Jefferson Airplane once said that San Francisco is 49 square miles surrounded by reality. But the city's reputation as a refuge for eccentrics and outsiders didn't begin with the Beat Generation, or the Summer of Love, or Harvey Milk in the Castro District. No, it's been in the city's DNA since the very beginning. What captivated me about Emperor Norton was, I think that he represents the, the true spirit of San Francisco, reinvention. People come here all the time to reinvent themselves. He wasn't the first one to do it, and it, it's a story that is the thread that weaves throughout our city's history. But does the San Francisco of today still hold a place for Emperor Norton and the misfits, outcasts, and weirdos who follow in his footsteps? Almost every local these days has a story about what isn't here anymore as if the city's turned into some kind of cruel magician that performs one disappearing act after another. The vanishing shoe repair shops, the hardware stores, the lesbian bars, all of them white rabbits disappearing into the bottomless well of a magician's hat. But what remains? What children didn't gather for the magician's show? My quest is pretty simple. I want to use the underground Emperor Norton community as a sort of barometer to gauge the level of weirdness that's still, hopefully, pulsing in the city of San Francisco. My first stop, the Tenderloin District. I'm at Emperor Norton's Booze Land on Larkin Street. You can get a PBR with a chaser for a pretty reasonable price here. Monty Python and the Holy Grail is playing on the television above the front door. On the far end of the bar, next to the neon-colored jukebox, there's a screen print of Emperor Norton framed on the wall. It's an illustration of the Emperor riding one of those old-timey bicycles where the front wheel is about the size of a hula hoop. In the back, some guys are playing a game of pool on the bar's purple felted table. Why purple? Well, it's a color fit for an Emperor. I head upstairs to meet the owner of the bar, Kevin DiMatteo, in his office. He's with Jeremy Fish, a visual artist and illustrator based out of North Beach. We all gather in front of a giant steel box. This is exciting, by the way. Thanks for letting us check oh, out. Oh, man. The sound you're hearing is me turning the keys of the Herman Safe Company safe. It's over a ton. Inside it is an authentic monetary note of Emperor Norton's, one of the very few still in existence. We're thinking about drawing a, a modern-day version of one of these, using it as a, a, a piece of barterable currency when I go into places that are nice to me. <laughs> Jeremy wants to take a move directly out of the Emperor's playbook to survive in an ever-increasingly expensive San Francisco. 
He plans to print his own paper money and circulate it. If Emperor Norton could do it, so could he. Kevin carefully takes the note out of the safe and puts it on the table in front of us. Okay, that's kind of cool. Let me turn on some lights for you here. And I'm going to make mine, like his was actually like, you know, this is a note that is worth X amount. Mine is going to be just like a, like a beacon of goodwill. And when I go somewhere, lately if I leave the neighborhood, I've had a lot of people in the city like, just be real generous or somebody picks mm -hmm. up the tab or some cool and I was I'm like man it'd be rad if I had something to leave in exchange for that sort of goodwill yeah. and or people knew there was a, a bunch of these floating around and maybe when I went places people would be like hey man yeah like we got a drink for you if you That's, happen to have one of those that'd be kind of cool uh, kind of how bartenders have the fernet coin where you put the coin down anywhere in the world exactly. and somebody buys you a shot exactly I, I, I the love same the sort of, of thing and I was thinking uh, I'll print a piece of art on the back of the bill but then I'll mimic this on the front so that for those that yeah know, like if you know what that is when you see it you'll be like oh shit that's it's great, on the same man. vibe as the Emperor Norton yeah, the, bill. His bills were we a take a close look at the note. It's roughly the size of a business envelope with a portrait of the Emperor on the left side and the seal of California on the right. The seal is a portrait of a woman in battle armor holding a pike, with the word Eureka emblazoned above her head. In the middle of the note is a bunch of text written in a sort of indecipherable 19th century legalese. And I think he would just have a stack of these and he would sign his... I think he would just sit in his hotel room, number them and sign them, so you can see the pen yep. is different, and then he'd walk around with some in his coat pocket or whatever. If he needed it, he'd and write the and sign them. So that says, Norton Emperor. That, that, that's his beautifully florid E, which is so weird how it cuts off at that line right there. It's really, really bizarre. Also looks like he used two pens for some reason. Yeah, uh-huh. Or like he pre-signed and numbered and then added the date. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This Emperor Norton note is from February 18th, 1878. And this is in remarkably good condition. Like anything, there's like a market for these. They fluctuate, they go up and down, but we think this could be worth like $13,000, which I'll never sell it, because I just like, I, I love knowing that the emperor actually held this and touched it and wrote it with his hand. That means more to me than the money for sure. I love the fact that you guys got it, which is where one should be at the very least out of however many there are on, on the planet, but it's, it's, it's valueless to have it be here, you know? Like, it's just so cool. Yeah, I just love looking at it. Me too. They, they said this might be like number 33 in the world that's known, so that's how, uh, it's not like, like 3,000 or 300, and there's a couple in private collections. And I would assume he used these as like a like a note for a loan, like uh like it reminds me of Wimpy, you know, I'll gladly exactly. pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Yeah, exactly. I would imagine in his infancy when he was trying to get the ball rolling and, and get people to value them. Emperor Norton was conjuring money out of thin air long before Bitcoin and blockchain, but it was always the emperor himself who was the most precious commodity. He became a sort of living meme during his own lifetime. Locals told tourists to make sure they saw the emperor while in town. Toy shops even made Emperor Norton dolls. He actually did become so beloved, like people were actually almost desperate for his um, visits. Like they wanted him to come in and give your, your restaurant some kind of hip cachet if he walked in. I read that there. they also, uh, they'd move people and put them in the window for the very same reason. Like if people oh. came by and saw him sitting out, you know, if you could see that he was eating there, it was right. a bit of a... Oh, like, oh that's awesome, you know? okay. Yeah, and he actually wasn't a drinker. They always think that he was like a, a drinker. He, even on Big on the back has him with a beard in his hand, and he just abstained. He wasn't a drinker or a druggie at all. He had far more pressing matters to worry about than getting loaded. He had the, a world to save. Certainly. A few days later, Jeremy Fish and I meet up at his studio on a corner in North Beach. Hey, how's it going? You're good. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'd never been, but I literally couldn't miss it. He's covered the plate glass windows with transparent paint. The front is oh, covered really? entirely by a bespectacled right and bearded okay. face. The side sports an ear and sideburns. The black awning of the building hangs just over the eyes. The whole package resembles a head wearing a fisherman's hat. 
and not just any head. It's unmistakably Jeremy Fish himself. Well, yeah, you weren't kidding about being able to see 100% through the windows, but people can't see in them. At night you can, because it's backlit. Like when I'm in here with my light table on and the lights in here, you can definitely see in here, especially when it's dark outside. Yeah, okay. Um, but at night I drop these curtains down so I you see. can't really see yeah. through it. Like a lot of the characters in this story, Jeremy would be pretty easy to spot if you ran into him on the street. Just like the plate glass windows of the building outside, he's wearing square tinted glasses and sports a salt and pepper beard that's approaching ZZ Top status. On top of that, he's in one of his zipper happy jumpsuits with a matching colored hat. He's sometimes called the unofficial mayor of North Beach, but his fame isn't restricted to his murals and artwork that festoon the streets and walls of local restaurants in the neighborhood. He's commercially successful too. At his work table, he's creating a draft of his own monetary note, modeled after the one he saw at Boozland. Uh, over the last year, I've had a lot more time to evaluate whether or not I can really afford to stay here as an older man, and like, I don't know that that's a reality. So I have to be motivated by these sort of crazy characters who reinvented themselves and found ways to stay here when it was equally. I mean, he lost his shirt in the rice game and stayed here during the gold rush. There was something to his recipe that made it possible. And I would like to find that part for me. I mean, a lot of why I'm still here is because I barter with all these businesses and stores and restaurants and, you know, things in San Francisco that support what I'm doing with my visual art. And I do think that that's a similar recipe to the way that he survived here and, you know, lived a very unique life. Where the Emperor's note says Imperial Government of Norton One across the top, Jeremy made his version say, you have just been friendly or generous with the San Francisco artist known as Jeremy Fish. He also swapped out the portrait of Emperor Norton with his own and traded the California seal for the California state flag. The Emperor's original note is made with good quality paper, but the color palette is black and white. Jeremy's note is a beautiful burgundy and gold screen print. Man, I draw pictures for a living in the most expensive city on, on well, at least in the United States. And that's an abstract thing to be doing here at this stage, and not a very wise one for a guy in his mid-40s who just got a divorce. Like, I should definitely move somewhere else and probably, like, own a nice home and, like, do all these things I should do at this age. But for some reason, and perhaps it is the, the mythology of guys like Norton, I feel a debt of gratitude to the people that came here before me and did weird shit. And at least as long as I can, I plan to stay here and sort of carry that torch in my own, like, minor league way, you know? That was an excerpt from Michael Locke Swingin's documentary he made with KLW in 2020. It's called Long Live the Emperor, the weird tale of San Francisco's most beloved eccentric. You can join in the festivities celebrating the legacy of Emperor Norton this weekend. The Widow's Norton Pilgrimage to Woodlawn Cemetery is in Colma this Sunday. You can find out more and hear the full version of that documentary at klw.org slash crosscurrents. I'm Hanat Baba.